0: You're listening to Women in Revolt, a six-part mini-series about art, activism and the women's movement in the UK in the 1970s and 80s. I'm Lindsay Young. I'm a curator, and since 2017, I've been researching the art and artists that feature in Women in Revolt, an exhibition on between November 2023 and August 2025, starting at Tate Britain in London, and then at the National Galleries of Scotland Modern in Edinburgh, and lastly at the Whitworth in Manchester. Throughout my research for the show, I've been meeting artists, makers and activists and hearing about their experiences living through a time of extreme social, economic and political change, exploring how their art and ideas forged a path and learning about the great debt women of my generation owe to them. This is the second of two episodes of our podcast about the art and activism of women of colour in the 1980s. Before we start, I should warn that this episode includes references to hate speech and police brutality. In our last episode, we heard about women's experiences at art college, how they challenged the way art and art history was being taught, and how they started to connect with each other. In this episode, we'll hear about some of the group shows and work during that period that expressed the politics and realities of their experiences.
1: When I look back to those days, I'm so astounded by how much we were doing. You know, we were showing exhibitions, we were doing workshops, we were curating exhibitions, we were having meetings, we were going to poetry recitals, we were watching films, we were reading. And when I think about that time, I think about it as a time of excitement. It was just an incredible energy.
0: That was artist and curator Marlene Smith, who we heard from in the last episode. As Marlene says, the 1980s was a time of immense energy and activity among artists of colour in Britain. There were a number of really significant shows by women in galleries across the country, but quite a lot of the activity was centred around London.
2: When I got here in the early 80s, it was a very exciting place. Margaret Thatcher had been elected, but you still had lots of funding for the arts and a very different kind of funding. And that was amazing to see the amount of galleries, the amount of funding for films, dance. So it was artistically an incredibly vibrant city and creatively. And also, you know, in terms of fashion, you had punks, New Wave and Blitz. And so there was a lot of things and people just doing and being. My name is Rita Keegan. I am a visual artist. I do a wide range of Art in a broad sense, textiles, computers, I'll use any media. It's all great. I mean, why not? I'm a maker and I'm proud to own that. Whether it's sewing, cooking, we make and that's what women do. We are makers.
0: Rita grew up in New York in the 50s and 60s. She went to the High School of Art and Design there where she majored in fashion illustration and costume design and then to the San Francisco Art Institute to study for a fine arts degree. Before coming to London in the early 80s, she had lived between California and New York and travelled internationally.
2: I moved to Brixton and got involved. I think they had just set up the Brixton Art Gallery. They had just squatted the place. And when I came to it, they were trying to set it up as an artist collective. It was a really mixed group of people, ages, races, and both genders, and a few others. So what was it like being part of the collective? There are movies in America, and there were these ones, Success Finds Andy Hardy, or Andy Hardy Goes to the Circus. And Andy Hardy were these format where it was a... Uh, teenage boy. And they, they were in the 30s, late 30s and 40s. And it was Mickey Rooney and and a young Judy Garland. So they would be singing and dancing. And the famous line would be, my dad has a barn. Let's put on a show. And that was very much Bricks and Art Gallery. We had this barn and we, we put on exhibitions, but also it was a way to demystify the whole process of showing when i went to art school it was that you were supposed to be discovered by some you know collector or this great god from the sky was going to take your work and it would just magically go on the walls well it didn't happen like that you know we learned how to do press release we learned how to hang work mop the floor And all the things that it actually took to put on an exhibition. And that is incredibly empowering.
0: The gallery opened in 1983 in the heart of Brixton in South
2: London. Brixton Art Gallery was 21 Railton Road. It was under three railway arches. And one of the railway arches actually was in the back. So you could cut through to get from one end of, of the market to the next. So you had lots of different people going through the gallery, which was really exciting. It was a community space with a small C. I mean, we were all part of the community. And initially, I don't know why, but we thought we could put on 12 shows a year, which doesn't give you much time for, you know, changing. So I think it went down to 10 It was very important that we showed work that didn't necessarily get a chance of being shown. So we showed work of performance, a lot of large-scale sculptural work, and work of people of color and gay and lesbian. We had a show from artists from Northern Ireland, and just a wide range of things that you tended not to get in the mainstream galleries. Rita got
0: involved in the Women's Work Group that put on shows of work by women of all backgrounds. One of these shows was called Love, Sex and Romance. It opened in October 1985. It's included a piece by Rita also called Love, Sex and Romance. It's a work of copy art, a series of 12 monoprints that she made using a photocopier to build layers of image and colour. It includes images of herself at different stages in her life.
2: I guess I use myself as... I hate every man, as you know, every woman. Thank you, Chaka Khan. And what is important for me with this piece of work and it being shown at the Tate, it means that every little girl that looks like me will see that work and not see the little face as a slave or a maid, but as a real person. And she will be able to say, look, Mom, that's me. Or she won't even say, look, Mom. She will be able to just take it for granted. Now, I spent a lot of my time in museums and galleries. And the Metropolitan was, I used to just love the Metropolitan. But had I seen me actually reflected in the paintings, that would be a little extra. It would have been a given. And that's what we need as women, to have things as a given. Because it's our world too.
0: Rita has made other work featuring images of herself, and she's painted self-portraits. She sees this as a political act.
2: I think the bottom line is all you have is your body. And when, as a woman and as a person of colour, you are erased from history... It's really important to put yourself in the picture. And I guess that's, I physically put myself in the picture. I took it literally.
0: There's a joyful feel to some of her images in love, sex and romance.
2: I think there is a a joy of life, but there's also a getting on with life. And there is a, a celebration without it being a celebration. Meaning? In clothing, there's a selfish joy of wearing the clothing. There's a selfish joy of looking at it. There's the possible pride of having made it and the events surrounding where you are going, what you're doing. And the first thing that humanity did was adorn themselves. If we found a feather, we put it in our hair. We found a nice rock. We found a way to wear it. And I refuse to buy into the sort of punishment of adornment. That self-adornment is something wrong or wicked or Protestant. I don't mean to go Christian on you, but I would imagine it's it's in a lot of cultures The misconception that adornment is vanity, because adornment does not have to be vanity. It can just be. You see children, and they flock to shiny. If you have a box of dressing up clothes, and they could be black ones, they could be purple ones, they could be sparkly ones. You can bet that the kids will put on the sparkly ones and just run around and have a wonderful time. And, And I think I am lucky enough not to have lost that joy of adornment. You know, also, I guess there are issues of image, and in a culture that tells you that you are not beautiful, that you should not be adorning yourself, that you should be lesser, that you should be smaller, that you should be lighter, you should be all these things that I am not. I'm not buying into any of that. And also, I learned quite early on that if you didn't like the way I looked, then you were definitely not going to like what was going on in my head. (laughs) You know, so you can just go away and let me dress up and have a good time.
0: Rita was also part of the Mirror Reflecting Darkly group at Brixton Art Gallery that organised shows devoted to work by Black women artists. The first show opened in June 1985, The catalogue explained the reason for having a black women's show was to exhibit the diversity within the concept black women and challenge people's expectations perpetuated by stereotypes, all themes that Rita just spoke about. The concept of black women was at the time a political one, designed to embrace women of African, Caribbean and Asian heritage, united by shared experiences of racism and migration. Another group show of work by Black women opened at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, ICA, in December 1985. It was called The Thin Black Line, and it was curated by the artist Labaina Himid.
1: It was really exciting. It was the beginning of friendships and of working relationships. It was just a wonderful opportunity to make community.
0: That was Marlene Smith again. Marlene took a year off studying at Bradford so she could be part of the show. It featured 11 artists, many of whom had met through the first National Black Art Convention in 1982 that we heard about in the last episode. The exhibition catalogue explained, All 11 artists in this exhibition are concerned with the politics and realities of being black women. We will debate upon how and why we differ in our creative expression of these realities. Our methods vary individually from satire to storytelling, from timely vengeance to careful analysis, from calls to arms to the smashing of stereotypes. We are claiming what is ours and making ourselves visible. We are 11 of the hundreds of creative black women in Britain. We are here to stay. Marlene remembers how Labena gathered everyone together to explain her vision for the show.
1: She sent a letter out to 11 women and invited us to her home in Battersea. And we all gathered there and we had tea. And she described what she wanted to do with the show. The
0: idea was to occupy the long, thin corridor that ran from the front of the gallery to the staircase at the back, hence the name, The Thin Black Line, with their work displayed on the walls and in the recesses on one side.
1: She wanted us to also add pictures that we brought in, so anything from pictures of black women in magazines through to pictures from our own homes. So I remember bringing a whole load of photographs from my mum's album And those are all on the wall as well. So she wanted to create the sense that there may only be 11 women in this show, but there's a whole population of black women outside of these walls. So that's how she wanted to bring them in.
0: Marlene took a while to come up with an idea for what to make.
1: I'm the kind of person that I really need a deadline to motivate myself. And I have always been like that. And it gives me the terrors sometimes that I just can't get going until it starts to be problem. It's like, you're going to run out of time. And I have to have that pressure. So I don't remember what other ideas I had about making work for The Thin Black Line. But I know that sometime before The Thin Black Line show, Cherry Gross was shot. So Cherry Gross was a middle-aged woman with a house full of children And one morning, at 7 o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on her door and the police were looking for one of her children, her son. And her son wasn't there at the time. And somehow in the middle of all of this hoo-ha, they shot her. It's never been explained clearly how they come to shoot this woman, but I do know that the injuries that she sustained meant that she spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair. And Cherry Gross has passed away now. But I remember I was so angry and feeling so aggrieved by this action of the police. I mean, we'd already had 13 dead at the, the birthday party. And this was just the latest onslaught onto innocent black people.
0: The birthday party Marlene is referring to became known as the New Cross Fire after a fire broke out in a house in New Cross, south-east London. The 13 young black people who died were aged 14 to 22. The fire, which happened in 1981, was widely believed to have been a racially motivated arson attack that was subject to a police cover-up. Black People's Day of Action was organised in response, with some 20,000 people marching through London in protest. The shooting of Cherry Gross four years later led to further anger at the actions of the police. Marlene also felt a real connection with Cherry Gross.
1: I really felt moved because my mother is a night worker. And if the police came to my house at seven o'clock in the morning, they might find my mother, but they might not because she might still be trying to get home. So there's a real significance about seven o'clock in the morning in the piece. It's the time that night workers are thinking about getting home. If you're on an early shift, that's the time when you're trying to get to your workplace. It's the time for the poor and the the dispossessed and the vulnerable to be roaming around the city. And I went to the march in the September. I remember going on the march. I'm just crying and just feeling so bereft. We were demanding that there was some kind of inquiry into this shooting, but I didn't feel hopeful that we would get what we wanted. And so the idea to make this piece came out of those emotions.
0: The piece she made was called Good Housekeeping. It features a woman standing with her left arm stretched out towards what could be a door, Behind her left arm is a photograph of a child's birthday party and across the wall above her is the text, My mother opens the door at 7am. She is not bulletproof.
1: I wanted to say something about the strength and vulnerability of black women, particularly black women of a certain generation. And my parents were windrushers. So my mum's generation is that generation that is, we're losing them now. But at the time, this is nearly 40 years ago. My mum would have been around the same age as I am now, so she's in her 50s. And I wanted to say something about those women that are so invisible. They are the backbone of our services. So they are the ones that are cleaning the loo's and cleaning the station before we get up and use the station. They're cleaning the hospitals. They are working shift work. They are invisible. And I wanted to say something about that. And also the j cloth suggests the domestic. I mean, all of the materials that I used for that particular piece are materials that you would find in any house.
0: Marlene used cleaning cloths to make the women's body. She soaked them in plaster
1: and moulded them onto chicken wire. I really wanted the image to look like my mum. It was important to me that she looked like my mum so I could think of her as my mother And the way that the arms crosses the photograph, I wanted it to seem protective. But also that photograph would have had pride of place in the home. So it's showing how protective she is, but also how proud she is of her family. Yeah.
0: Another artist helped Marlene write her text onto the wall in the show. Shutapa Bizwas. We heard from Shutapa in the last episode. Shutapa had connected with Labana Hamid in her final year at Leeds while researching a dissertation on the work of Black British artists. Labana had been co-curating a show of work by contemporary Black artists called Into the Open at the Map and Art Gallery in Sheffield, and Shutapa went to hear her give a talk there. Labana visited Shutepa's studio in Leeds and invited her to show two of her works at the thin black line at the ICA, the video Kali that we heard about in the last episode and a piece called Housewives with Steak Knives.
3: Housewives with Steak Knives is a painting that's, I don't know, approximately seven feet by eight feet, something like that. And it sits forward of the wall by about three feet or so. So it's very present. Shutepa made it over
0: three years. It started out as a disembodied head, which she gradually added to.
3: Her identity, the housewife's identity, the subject's identity, and she's loosely based on a self portrait. And at that point, she just has a head and a tongue sticking out, (laughs) you know, and her eyes are wide and angry. And she's looking out at us, you know, she is being made, fashioned out of the paper, out of this blank white space that's taped together using white tape, white masking tape. In the final work, what we see is an image of a four-armed woman based on the iconographic image of the Hindu goddess, Kali. And she's kind of suspended in this white space, holding the head of a man. We don't know if he's been decapitated or is about to be, but he's certainly being held. And around her neck is a garland of, of heads of different characters. One is an archetypal capitalist. The other is an archetypal colonial British Raj type. Another person resembles Hitler, so on and so forth, Trotsky figure. But importantly, she's jumping out of this white space. And that white space is a metaphor of the institutional white space.
0: Carly is also brandishing what looks like a knife. So what is she angry about? Is this about avenging men in general? My anger, if you
3: like, with men is is not with men per se, but with a patriarchal culture, which is so steeped in an economy of subjugation and exploitation the thing for me which is really important is that feminism challenges patriarchy and the power structures that patriarchal culture has given itself permission to foist over the entire planet more or less through the history of colonialism and imperialism. I'm actually really, generally speaking, an optimistic and happy person. But I think we should all feel quite angry about the way in which patriarchal culture feels at liberty to abuse power. And I'm angry at that. Carly is angry with it.
0: But there's another side to Kali, literally, her two arms on the left of the picture.
3: You know, she's in yin and yang. On the other half of her, her side, she h- holds her hand up in a symbol of of peace. She arrives in peace. And it's important to me that her hand is painted with something we call altar, which is ceremonial. So the ceremony of peace. And in the hand beneath it, she carries two things, a rose-like object and also a flag. And on that flag is a collage of two paintings by the Italian artist Artemisia Gentileschi and the image of Judith beheading Holofernes.
0: This is perhaps the most famous painting by the Renaissance artist Artemisia Gentileschi. She was a woman artist, putting women in the centre of stories, working in the 1600s. The painting Shutepa mentions retells the Old Testament story of Judith, who entered the tent of Holofernes, a general who was about to destroy her home. And after he had passed out from drink, she decapitated him.
3: What is important to me also is not only the history of resistance by women to violence, you know, the kind of revolt against patriarchy and the violence of patriarchy, But it was important to me that the photocopy of Schantillesky's paintings is taken from an art history book written by my tutor Griselda Pollock called Old Mistresses.
0: Old Mistresses was art historians Griselda Pollock and Rosika Parker's groundbreaking feminist critique of art history. By including this image, Shutepa was continuing the dialogue with her tutor that we heard about in the last episode over the need for art history and feminism to engage with issues of racism and colonialism. Like many other shows of black artists at the time, the Thin Black Line received little attention in the mainstream press, but it provoked some strong reactions from the people who visited.
3: Housewives with Steak Knives, whilst it was on exhibition at the ICA, was spat at. We don't know who by... But whoever it was, it seems was either, you know, was an expert spitter or they'd been practising because there was one spit mark and it was right between the eyes on the forehead.
0: A number of group exhibitions in the 1980s were devoted to work by women of South Asian heritage, including what is thought to be the first group exhibition of women of colour in the UK, four Asian artists. It was curated by Shaila Berman and Bajan Hunjan and was staged at Greenwich, London in 1981. In 1986, a show opened at the Greenwich Citizens Gallery in Woolwich called Jagrati, a Hindi word meaning awakening. It was curated by Simrath Pati. Her original idea was to concentrate on the issue of domestic violence, but the remit expanded to include a broader consideration of the experiences of women of South Asian descent. It featured work by 13 artists, including Shutepa Biswas and Nina Edge. We heard from Nina in the last episode about her experiences studying ceramics in Cardiff. She produced two works for the show, one of which was a series
4: of drawings. The work is related to me remembering a time when I had been living in Cardiff and something had happened that seemed to create an increase in blatant racism. And I don't know looking back on it now, what that was. Maybe there'd been a terrorist incident or maybe there'd been a cricket match or who knows. Things used to happen and then you'd notice for a little while afterwards that things would be a little bit hectic and that people would be more... make more display of racism. And I decided to be playful with these incidents. So I made... Drawings that I cut up and recollaged back together onto gold card. And every now and again, the drawing spills out and the crayon lands directly on the gold card. So you feel a bit as if there's a layer of unreality, like people are dissolving a bit. Each image featured a woman in different situations. Searching for flowers in the tandoori garden is really about being an Indian person in an Indian restaurant when there are people tanked up on lager. It was it was one of the last places you could get a drink late. People that that wouldn't speak with South Asian people that had no Indian friends or Pakistani friends or Bangladeshi friends, but they would feel themselves to be quite at home in an Indian restaurant on a Friday night. So there was a lot of quite um, alcohol-fueled behaviours at large there. So that image has a very yellow-toned woman looking at a flower and she's got a little plait over to one side, which is how I used to um, wear my hair.
0: The second image, trying not to offend my parents, was about the conflicts of growing up between different cultures. As mentioned at the start of the episode, this next part
4: includes hate speech. The third image, Paki Goes Home on a Piece of Spit, which I do appreciate there's some sensitivities about that title, but I felt like the world was verbally so vicious at the time that it was fine to use that word in the title because that's what people would shout. They would shout... uh, Paki, they wouldn't shout, South Asian person. <laughs> so it was part of the language of that time. And that relates to this weird incident that happened when I was walking through Cardiff and a man was there with his family, a white family were there, and the guy shouted at me and then spat at me in front of his wife and kids. It was almost like to show them, uh, to teach them how you of what little worth I was to be treated. And it landed on my foot. His spit landed on my shoe, and I can remember it, the sound of it and the feeling of it. And I was just really shocked. I just, like, um, I just stared at them, and then I sort of carried on, because there was more of them than I was on my own. The way I've drawn the woman in this one, she's got the the pointy zigzag hair, and it's literally standing on end, So it's like, you know, when a cat fluffs itself up. But she's also got another hair that's lying down. So she's got two hairstyles at once in this image. One is the feeling of, like, that's how much I want to run, and the other one is, like, I'm just going to carry on, just going to stand here and um, hope this situation somehow ends. So she's on a, a little wave that is a sort of motif that I used a lot in ceramics, so... It doesn't attempt to look like spit, and she's not really there in her body. She's just an outline. All of the other females in this series, you can see what their vest is made of, or you can see what their skin. They're, they're dense. They're they're present. But in this piece, the woman has only her skin colour. She has a sort of It's a non-committal facial expression, which is, I think, what lots of people do when they're under attack. They they go blank and try not to make eye contact so that things don't escalate. And although the collar of her garment is coloured and it's a green, the rest of it is less and less visible. So there are dots and then the dots get smaller and smaller. And so it's attempting to convey a feeling of kind of fading away. The fourth image was called We're talking about people
0: who don't even know how to use the toilet.
4: That is something that I heard come out of my radio when I was working in the pottery. And it was being said about the migrants that were moving into Tower Hamlets at that time. And somebody, I don't know who, maybe from the local authority maybe from the housing department. I don't know who was speaking. I just wrote it down on a, on the notebook. We're talking about people who don't even know how to use the toilets as a way of... of that's how they were describing people that had been uh, bounced out of their homeland and had um, arrived into Tower Hamlets. At the time when all these things were happening, I would have been, I don't know, 22, and it was a good way for me to process what was happening and to get a laugh out of it or to come out on top, I suppose. No-one's going to buy them to put them on the wall. They're not nice to look at. They weren't designed to be nice to look at. They're kind of like the opposite of advertising, really. They're like, just, um, this is happening, here it is. It's a bit ugly, isn't it? It's never been easy to continue with that because of the way that money started to operate within the art world after this period just after this work was made actually and the commodification of all things cultural sort of moves in onto that situation where people were had previously been exchanging ideas through what they did and making things really quite cheaply. A lot of work was made out of photocopies and screen print and biros and as I was doing crayon and felt pen and then that, that all became completely different. That was about to change as these were being made. We'll hear more about this in the next
0: episode. Another work that Nina made around this time was called Snakes and Ladders. It features a large batik on paper panel with ceramic elements and pots that Nina had made and decorated.
4: The British population were trying to come to terms with how their world was changing. And so there was a lot of joking, constant joking and mithering about Indian food. So... I made a lot of clay bindi or okra or lady's finger and then I made a pot which the hand of the woman comes right out of the pot, it's not painted on it, it's three-dimensional and that pot was called So Let's Hear It for the Lady's Fingers because all these sorts of sexual innuendos that used to be, they used to come my way if I was out. I just made them into jokes and put them in my works. There were other pots and clay objects too. The panel featured a huge image of a South
0: Asian woman balancing on a step while carrying a pot of snakes. The way Nina made
4: it was a complete departure from her practice as a ceramicist. I got a library book about how to make batik and decided that it would be nice to use a process that was considered ethnicky or crafty or Asian-y and to make these big kind of fuck-off statements with them. She found a couple of cheap fibre boards in a skip. She stuck lining paper on them
0: to create a canvas for the image, and then she made that using hot wax, inks and crayons.
4: I'd been given one tool, one chanting tool, which is a little copper bowl with a spout that you can heat wax in, and I had a candle that was lit, and I had another candle that I was melting, and I just kneeled down on the floor of the pottery and drew... Snakes and Ladders, with there was no pencil sketch. The idea just completely came out as I was doing it and you can see that if you draw or you paint, you can see that, you can see the lines where I've gone, oh no, that hip's too far. You can see that I'm reaching towards trying to get a woman that looks like she could stand up. The way that that artwork appears is partly something just coming straight directly out of me, which is very, very focused on the kind of Orientalist imaging that was coming out of British television at the time and film. So there was The Jewel and The Crown and there was Gandhi. There was a lot of the constant bombardment of the idea of a beautiful, passive, female Asian victim, victim to men, victim to... Poverty, with no voice. These women never really speak. Nina wrote a poem called Snakes and Ladders, which appears with the work. It says, put on the Orientalist glasses and see the world through this kind of tint of the colonial visitor, if you like. So the image was relating to the text of the poem. In what way? The image is about the jewel existence of beauty and threat the woman that's depicted as holding a jug full of snakes and her plait has also become a snake's head so it's the idea that you might want it but it might also kill you or hurt you a bit she's looking in the same direction as the tallest snake she looks a little bit as if she's in control of that snake actually and she might let it loose but she's balancing on the top step of a staircase that becomes increasingly narrow. So it diminishes to a point. You can see a lovely brown foot. In fact, you can see her two lovely brown feet. One foot is flat down, one foot is on the ball of her foot. So she might jump, you don't know. She might fall. Her whole body is twisted in such a way that the whole thing is extremely unstable and not really sustainable for very much longer so that very precarious standing on a knife edge or standing on something that really couldn't support its own weight was very much what it felt like at that time living in Britain it had been really ugly the level of blatant racism not so much in urban areas but pretty much Everywhere, it was kind of open season on brown skin people. So talking about my experience in the 70s and 80s of literally being spat at in the street or chased off the street, that's kind of the feeling, what it feels like when the ground has gone from underneath you, nothing is really steady, nothing is really stable.
0: Nina would go on to buy her own boutique equipment and really learn the process of making work with Dye & Fabric.
4: There was a politics to this. So I did... Everything I could to make the work the sort of thing a woman would have made and to insist that the sorts of things that women make are amazing. This wasn't a view that everyone shared. I tried to get work then funded by the Welsh Arts Council and was really knocked back and told, we can't buy the work and we can't support the work because it's not art, it's craft And so you could make some craft and sell it in our craft centre, but this isn't art. Given that kind of resistance to her
0: work, the support and backing that other women gave to artists like Nina was hugely significant.
4: In a way, the connecting of the South Asian artists and the black artists meant that we created spaces in which we could exchange ideas and present ideas without having to do all the groundwork and we could develop our work more quickly so the series of batiks that followed on from snakes and ladders that were on huge fabrics and that went to america and have traveled a lot and subsequent large textile work that all comes from a place of respect and safety that we made for each other and to me that's A very, very important, valuable outcome that came out of that is that I could show this work and people would nod and smile and I wouldn't have to defend myself or feel that I'd done something really clever, but it was just being laughed at, which is what would happen to me largely when I showed my work. For example, in Cardiff, that was a very difficult environment to show work in.
0: Snakes and Ladders was included in a touring show that Shitababiz Biswas co-curated with Sarah Jane Edge and Claire Slattery. It was called Along the Lines of Resistance. It was hosted at Rochdale Art Gallery in 1988, and it travelled to Barnsley Museum and to South London Gallery.
3: It was working with women from a range of different backgrounds. Mona Hatoum was part of the exhibition, and Talentire is an Irish artist. Lubaina Himmid, Maud Salter, Sonia Boyce, Shiloh Berman, Nina Edge, Veronica Slater. So this particular show was really important because it looked at questions of class and imperialism in relation to gender and sexuality. So it was a really exciting exhibition, I think. What was exciting
0: about the exhibition, though, would lead to resistance from the outside world.
3: We had begun the process of establishing an education programme, not only in terms of when it was exhibited at Rochdale Art Gallery, where it was supported, but by the time it came to Barnsley, the local councillors shut it down. They were so offended by the fact that we were dealing with questions of sexuality, that we were dealing with questions of race and gender and class and sexuality, and that all of these things were overlapping and sitting side by side, and, you know, that there were conversations across those subjects. And they literally shut down the education program. And this is very symbolic of the times that we were living in. You know, this is a period in history where Clause 28 was being implemented with force. You know, Clause 28, of course, was um, a government policy that prevented any kind of educational program that advocated or supported a conversation around sexuality and the representation of queer people within our cultural domain.
0: We'll hear more in the next episode about Clause or Section 28, and the pressures on feminist artists in the late 1980s more generally. So what was being done to make sure all the progress up until then, all the work and all the shows, wouldn't be
2: forgotten? I think it must have been in 85 or 86, I had a show at the Battersea Arts Centre. And at the Battersea Arts Centre at that time, Women Artists Slide Library was there.
0: That was Rita Keegan again. The Women Artists Slide Library, now the Women's Art Library, was collecting slides from women artists and actively documenting their exhibitions. We heard from Flick Allen in our second episode about how the library got started and found its way to Battersea Art Centre.
2: They ended up moving to Fulham Palace, which was uh, quite amazing. It was a beautiful space, but you had to walk through a park A woman's organization in the middle of a park (laughs) in the winter, and both ends you had to walk through a park. So there was always that sort of scary, dangerous kind of thing. It was the bishop's library, and I was asked to um, start collating information on women artists of color. The Black Women Artists Index, it was called initially.
0: Rita started by going through the collection already at the Women Artists Slide Library to see what they already had. But her project was really helped when some Arts Council funding came available for Black arts organisations. She was invited to sit on a panel to decide what to do with the money, along with other Black artists, including Eddie Chambers, Rashid Irene, and Shaka Dedi.
2: So we discussed what was the best thing to do with this amount of money. And one of the things that we came on was how important documentation was and eddie at that time was doing a lot of documentation off his own back they decided to use the money for eddie to take
0: photographs and buy catalogues of the various black art shows and then send the material on to different people to build archives of work by black artists south asian artists and in rita's case women artists this really helped her build up the women artists of color index and get the word out to people who might want to use it so why was the Index and the Women's Artist Slide Library more generally such an important resource for women practitioners?
2: What I always say about my family history is because I know where I've been, it's easy to know where you're going and it changes where you're going. And if you don't have that groundwork then you're lost. And I think that's with feminist practice in general. We keep on reinventing the wheel. We can't move on to the jets because we're so busy just trying to get that wheel moving. And I think it's really important to see what somebody has done because you shouldn't have to make the same work. You know, a few years ago, I met this young woman photographer, and she was doing all this photographic self-portraiture. And she was going to one of the universities, and I said, well, have you ever heard of the work of Joe Spence? And she said, no, who's that? You know, and I'm not saying that her work, she wouldn't have done what she did. But she needed to know that she wasn't alone in her practice, that somebody else else. Had had a practice.
0: Looking back on the 1980s, what did it feel like for women artists of colour?
1: That time was a time of possibility. It was a very optimistic time. It was really feeling that we'd made an impact. We were making an impact. Later, I felt differently about it. Because the 90s came and swallowed up the progress that we'd made...
0: We'll hear more about this in our next episode. So what was the impact of all this creative activity?
4: We'd only been subjects and then only been influences. You know, Howard Hodgkin's lovely brightly coloured paintings based on Indian art, or you you can study the temple sculptures, but you can't study the way in which you are represented in this culture. All of those things, for them to have been sort of pushed and pushed and pushed that that's been beneficial really beneficial so I think that black women have made an immense difference disproportionate difference really if you think about how few of us were there at the beginning of that and with no black tutors and no women tutors
0: in our next and final episode, we'll hear from women artists, photographers, filmmakers and activists who were responding to the political upheavals in the 1980s. And we'll hear how this changing political landscape impacted on their ability to make and show their
4: work. They wanted to completely erase and take out any school books in which families that were not just a mother and a father
3: were depicted. So it was about censorship. And censorship of not just the kind of
4: educational materials that could be used in schools, but censorships of our lives as gay parents and lesbian parents. Well, my intention is to actually
1: literally think about a visibility that is beautiful, that is proud, that is confident, but also to situate ourselves in imaginative ways, as being successful, as being able to be successful. And that's not imaginary. That's very real at the, <laughs> at the moment.
0: The Women in Revolt podcast series was made possible by the generous support of Labana Hamid. It was conceived of by me, Lindsay Young, and it was produced by Rosie Oliver of Ticker Tape Productions, who researched, conducted and recorded all of the interviews. It features music from White Mice by the Medettes. Women in Revolt, Art and Activism in the UK, 1970 to 1990, is on at Tate Britain from the 8th of November 2023 to the 7th of April 2024 at National Galleries of Scotland Modern Edinburgh from 25th of May 2024 to the 26th of January 2025, and at the Whitworth University of Manchester from 7th of March to the 24th of August 2025. The exhibition is supported by the Women in Revolt Exhibition Supporters Circle, Tate International Council, Tate patrons and Tate members.